I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 17. Now Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and there was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity for 18 years, and she was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. And when Jesus saw her, he called her and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your infirmity. And he laid his hands upon her, and immediately she was made straight, and she praised God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his ass from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for eighteen years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said this, all his adversaries were put to shame. And all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. Jesus Christ has done more than any other man who's ever lived to bring purity and harmony into the relationship between men and women. I think I can show you an illustration of how he did that in this text. And then, when we've looked briefly at this text, in the little bit of time we've got left, I'm going to uh, take you to two or three other illustrations of how he did this. He did it again and again, and we'll just scratch the surface this morning. A woman is here in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. She's bent double, probably, can't stand up, some kind of ailment in her back. Eighteen years she's been this way. Jesus is in the synagogue, too. He's probably the teacher that day. And they meet each other. And what happens is really amazing. Because she doesn't say anything. She doesn't ask to be healed. She gives no evidence in this text of pursuing Jesus, like the woman who touched his garment on the road. She's just there in her need. Jesus is there in his power, and he becomes the initiator. Let's look at verses 12 and 13. When Jesus saw her, he called her and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your infirmity. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately... She was made straight and praised God. She asked nothing. She promised nothing. She had not cornered Jesus. He was not forced to do this in any way. He could have finished his lesson and gone home. Nobody would have given the thought at all to that situation or that woman. But he called her. He took the initiative. He made an issue, in fact. He made an issue of this woman. In fact, he made three issues. We only want to talk about one of them. I'll tell you what they are. At least three. 
Issue number one, how to keep the Sabbath day holy. What about ox and people? Issue number two, hypocrisy. Issue number three, men and women. That's the one I want you to look at. Look at verse 16. Ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? Now, if his only points were one and two, then I think all he would have said was, Ought not this woman whom Satan bound for 18 years to be loosed on the Sabbath day? But that's not what he said. He said, Ought not this woman... And then, if you'd allow just a little speculation as he sweeps his eyes over these male synagogue leaders. A daughter of Abraham. A daughter of Abraham. A daughter of Abraham. Be healed. Now what do those words mean? What's the point of putting those loaded words into these into these words or his mouth before all these sons of Abraham? What message do they carry? What weight are they intended to communicate? Here's what I think they're intended to communicate. I think Jesus is saying, on top of all the other reasons why you synagogue leaders should care more about a suffering person than a thirsty ox, on top of all the other reasons why you should care more about a thirsty person, I mean, a a wounded and hurting person than a thirsty ox, is this reason. She's an heir of the promises of Abraham. She is an heir of a fellow heir with you of the most stunning promises ever made to any person in the world. Paul sums it up in Romans 4, heir of the world. Abraham is an heir of the world and his posterity with him. And you, synagogue leaders, pride yourself in saying, we are the children of Abraham. Well, she is too. And you you guard yourselves and you hide from the warnings of John the Baptist by saying, we have Abraham as our father. We don't need to humble ourselves and repent like John says we do. We're, we have Abraham as our father. And Jesus says, she does too. I think that's what's carried by the words, daughter of Abraham in that synagogue. And so the message of Jesus is about Sabbath-keeping, it's about hypocrisy, and it's about how men and women ought to relate to each other as fellow heirs of God's promises. He's saying to men in the synagogue, and he's saying to men today at Bethlehem, the believing woman in your midst is an heir of the promises of God. They too are the meek who will inherit the earth. They too are the righteous who will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Now, 
Let's just pause here and think about what this means for men and women today. Husbands and wives, brothers and sisters, girlfriends and boyfriends, colleagues. It means that we should look at each other through the lens of God's Word. We must learn to look at each other through the lens of God's Word. Let's just try that on this woman for a minute here. She's been bent over for 18 years. That means she probably looked like this. Was bent right in half. Couldn't stand up straight. Now, what's that like to live that way for 18 years? Well, it's horrible. People stare at you. People think in that society you've committed some terrible sin. Kids laugh and snicker and make brutal jokes about you. No one can look you in the eye even if they had the courage to look you in the eye because you're so bent down. You can't have any normal sexual relations with your husband. You feel like an embarrassment to everyone you're with. What do you see? What do you see when you look at this woman? Well, it depends on what lens you're looking through, doesn't it? Let's just ask now, husbands, let's bring this right up to date. Husbands, what do you see when you look at your wife? The answer to that is going to depend on whether you look through the lens of Playboy magazine or the lens of God's Word. If you look through the lens of God's Word, you will see a daughter of Abraham. That's what Jesus saw. Say anything about her being bent over? Maybe she drooled? Didn't see any of that. She was a daughter of Abraham. And if we learn to see Christian women the way Jesus saw that woman, then we will see them as heirs of the King of glory. And that will simply revolutionize our attitudes, our words, and our behaviors. Now, it cuts both ways, of course. And perhaps I should say this. Women are just as likely to be disappointed with their husbands as men are to be disappointed with their wives. Women are just as prone to speak negatively of their husbands as husbands are to make light of their wives. Women are just as prone to try to get their husbands to be what she always dreamed the man ought to be that she married and therefore probably needs to be told just as much as the men Look at him through the lens of Scripture. This man is a son of Abraham. He will one day, in spite of all unimaginable hindrances, shine like the sun in the kingdom of his father. With all the imperfections that he has, he will be changed in the twinkling of an eye and every sin will go and he will be given a body like the body of his glorified Lord along with you. It's simply, if we could learn to look through the lens of God's Word, 
into each other's faces. What a revolution would come into our homes. I think that we will be dumbfounded. I think that we will be dumbfounded in the age to come as we look back on how poorly we treated each other on the way to glory. We will just be speechless as we look at one another in the kingdom. There is an honor and a respect and a reverence that we should show each other, men and women, and oh, how much happier our homes would be if we could let them be filled with the expressions of this honor. And they will be filled with those expressions if we learn to look at each other through the lens of God's word, through the lens of Luke thirteen sixteen, As heirs of God's promise, daughters and sons of Abraham destined together for unspeakable glory in the fulfillment of God's promises. Now that's the sort of thing Jesus did and said over and over again. So what I want to do now is, uh, oh, we don't even have time for what I've got planned here, but let me try to race through three illustrations from elsewhere in his teaching and uh, show you that this is not an isolated incident of saying things and doing things that if we really caught on to them would absolutely revolutionize the way we treat Wives and friends and daughters and so on. Matthew 5, 28 says, don't bother looking at these, I'll just run fast. It says, Matthew 5, 28, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, throw it away. It is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Has that word ever sunk into you? It's a revolutionary word for men. It's a revolutionary word for women in the 20th century. It really is. I mean, it's the most radical thing Jesus could have possibly said. It condemns in the most forceful way possible, namely with the threat of hell, all pornography, all the entire enterprise of the commercializing of the female body in advertising and entertainment, can you imagine the wrath of God that is being stored up in heaven to be poured out upon the billion-dollar industry that is precisely designed to do what this text prohibits? Namely, entice men to look at women lustfully. It is a billion-dollar industry. Mountains of wrath are being stored up in heaven, if I understand this text correctly. Do you believe that? Hell is threatened here for those who look upon a woman lustfully. How much more for those who devote their lives and their money to cultivate lust? Oh, I don't think we've begun to feel what this text is saying to us men individually and to the industry. It is pervasive. And God hates it. Wrath is being stored up for the day of judgment 
upon the whole billion dollar industry that tries to get men to look at women as anything but persons in the image of God. We ought to be stunned by this text. I mean, it just ought to make us... He can't have said that. Gouge out an eye to avoid lust because you'll go to hell if you don't. What's clear from this text is that Jesus Christ means to rescue women. Mark this. He means to rescue women from the attack upon their personhood by those who exploit and commercialize their bodies. And women who follow Jesus will look to Jesus for how to use their bodies, not to Mademoiselle or Glamour or the mannequins at Dayton's. They will look to Jesus for how to use their bodies. And men who follow Jesus will guard their eyes for the good of women and the glory of God. It is a revolutionary two verses. A second illustration comes from Matthew 7:12, where Jesus simply says, You all know this by heart, I think. Whatever you wish that people would do to you, do so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. We call that the golden rule. Whatever you wish that people would do to you, do so to them. Do you think that applies to the way men and women treat each other? Well, of course it does. They're not excluded. This is not a, a limited statement in whom it applies to. We ought to treat each other the way we'd want to be treated in the other person's shoes. Now, that's, that's radical. I think we have just whitewashed the teachings of Jesus and domesticated them through familiarity. Familiarity breeds contempt, ironically. We've said that the golden rule... This is, this is absolutely shattering to the ordinary way we relate to each other. It's just shattering. Let me, let me try to apply it to you and help you see how shattering this is. Nobody in this room, I'm going to make some three absolute statements here, and if, if you disagree with any of these, you come tell me at the door afterwards, and I'll correct it in the next service if, if, if you convince me. Number one, nobody in this room likes to be made fun of. Two, nobody here likes to be exploited or taken advantage of. Three, nobody here likes to be ignored or treated as useless. Now, what's the implication of that according to this text? Real simple. If we follow Jesus, nobody here will ever make fun of anybody. Kids, listen. Kids, nobody who follows Jesus ever makes fun of anybody. Second, nobody here will treat another person, male or female, as though they were useless. Insignificant. And third, if you follow Jesus, nobody 
here will take advantage of somebody else. You see how, how incredibly radical this is. And the reason it's radical is because you and I, without exception, everybody in this room has an overwhelming passion to be treated well. We want to be treated well. And we have an innate sense of getting angry at somebody if they mistreat us. And Jesus simply says, take that innate and overwhelming passion to be treated well and make it the measure of your love to others. I mean, this man taught like nobody ever taught. This man laid upon us the most glorious and beautiful. On the one hand, his... uh, Statement is radical in that there's a narrow way and a hard way that leads to life. On the other hand, we say, there's no other way I'd rather live than that way. That's the most authentic way to live in all the world. I want that more than anything else in my life, to live like Jesus taught. I tell you, it'll change a marriage in a hurry. If you can first look at each other through the lens of the Word of God and then put yourself in the other person's shoes before you ever say or do anything. Third and finally, the most devastating thing Jesus ever said against the characteristic male and female sins of our lives and day was Matthew 18:3, where he said, Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Men who act like backyard bullies and women who play the helpful coquette are not childlike. They are childish. Genuine childlikeness and humility, like everything else Jesus taught, is revolutionary in our relationships between men and women. Childlike chauvinists and childlike feminists are very rare animals. Now, how does all this apply to our conclusion from last week? Our conclusion from Genesis 1 to 3 was, God has called men, men, to bear the primary responsibility of leadership in a relationship to a woman. Or to put it another way, men are held accountable first. Men are held accountable first for taking the initiative to do what can be done to make the relationship the way it ought to be. Now, my answer to the question how what we've just seen relates to that is this. Jesus purges Christian leadership of everything that makes it ugly and he builds into that leadership everything that makes it beautiful. He purges it of self-exaltation. He builds into it the reality of servanthood. He says, for example, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. So that's the end of all arrogance in Christian leadership, all self-exaltation. And then he says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And there's the key to the most beautiful kind of leadership imaginable. 
that builds others up rather than putting them down. But now right here, a mistake is often made and don't want us to make it. It would be a great mistake to say that because Jesus elevated the concept of servanthood, he thereby canceled the concept of leadership. That's simply not true. We know it is not true both because of what he said and what he did. What he said was this. Let the leader become as one who serves. Luke twenty two twenty six. Let the leader become as one who serves. He never said, let the leader stop leading. Never. He never said, serving makes leaders less leaders. And what he did was this. He gave himself as an example of the kind of leadership that he intended to be implemented. At his lowest point, now picture him on that last night, at his lowest point of servitude or servanthood. He's got a towel around him. He's stripped down. He's on his knees. He's in the position of a slave. He's washing the filthy feet of these half-hearted disciples. And not one person in that room doubted who the leader was at that moment. He's the one we'll follow. And if we follow him, we will go to our knees. There is no contradiction between leadership and servanthood. Not if you follow Jesus. So what does Jesus do for us now? He does this. He shows us and he teaches us that if a man takes up the mantle of leadership, according to Genesis 2, he must not seize it as a right for himself. Rather, he must accept it as a responsibility given by God. The language of leadership in the mouth of Jesus is the language of responsibility, not rights. And this is one of the reasons why we get so mixed up today. We live in a rights, 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 rights-oriented world. Give me my rights as a man or as a woman or as a child or as an employee. Rights, rights, rights. And in the voice of rights, in the, in the swell of, of crying out for our rights... The biblical orientation, which doesn't wholly deny rights in all cases, but simply elevates the concept of accepting responsibilities in relationships, is drowned out. And so I think what Jesus teaches us is simply this. Uh, Christian leadership means the responsibility of servant leadership, not the right of lordly domination. And this is exactly what Paul takes us to in Ephesians 5 when he summons husbands to be like Jesus and to lay down their lives as the heads of their wives to which we'll turn next week. Let's pray. We've gathered at your table Father, 
And you have taught us at the table what it means when we are called to leadership. Not lording it over anyone, not puffing ourselves up, asking who is the greatest, but rather becoming a servant, not taking the first place at the head of the table, but leaning towards those jobs which might seem more demeaning. And then you have told us in this message, Lord, numerous things that simply cut us to the quick in our pride, men and women. And I just pray for a miracle at Bethlehem, the miracle of the golden rule, the miracle of lust-free men, the miracle of chaste and modest women, the miracle, God, of the fulfillment of the radical teachings of Jesus Christ. Lord, we can't do it on our own. We want you to come and move among us and glorify yourself as you make us into the image of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.